Please note, this episode contains multiple mentions of sexual abuse. Listeners may find these disturbing. On June 7, 1985, the National Catholic Reporter did what no Catholic publication had ever done before. It published a story about a pedophile priest. It went across four pages, and it was based on the reporting by Jason Berry for the Acadia newspaper in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. Tom Roberts, former editor of The Reporter. In the 1970s and 80s, Father Gilbert Gautier abused dozens of young boys across the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. He was the first priest ever to be criminally indicted in the United States for sexually abusing children. Robert says that back then, this simply wasn't the sort of thing a Catholic newspaper published. And the decision to publish was not an easy one. I mean, this was something no one had approached. And in fact, when it was published, there was a Jesuit on the board who at the next board meeting advanced a motion of no confidence in the editor. When he got rid of Fox, there wasn't a second. And the board essentially said, no, this is why this paper exists. Future editors like myself never had to worry about doing tough stories. But it was, a, you know, we lost subscriptions. What was the criticism of the story? Why didn't it was hurting the church. A few bad apples. You're sensationalizing this. In the 1980s, clergy sex abuse wasn't considered a widespread problem. Even when guilt became clear and undeniable, as with Gautier's case, many Catholics would have preferred to deal with it quietly. To call attention to cases of clergy sex abuse was seen by some as an attempt to undermine the church and the credibility of its teachings. This was definitely how many interpreted the reporter's coverage. But the fact is, the reporter was right. And the decision to tell the story of clergy sex abuse in 1985, and for the next 35 years, was the right call. Welcome to Crisis, a podcast from The Catholic Project. In our last episode, we talked about the resurgence of the sex abuse crisis in 2018. It left a lot of Catholics feeling discouraged and wondering if the church will ever come to terms with the enormity of the scandal. Today, we're taking a longer view of the crisis. According to the most available research on sex abuse in the church, most cases of abuse took place in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. So why didn't the church address it then? This is an extremely complicated and frustrating history. We can't recount all the twists and turns in this podcast, so we'll focus on a few flashpoints. We'll leave resources in our show notes if you want to dig deeper. Bishops and other leaders in the American church have been aware of clerical sex abuse for at least 70 years. There were plenty of opportunities, missed opportunities, to prevent the massive wave of abuse. Perhaps the earliest warnings came in the 1940s from a priest in New Mexico. A priest named Gerald Fitzgerald, who was the founder of uh, the Servants of the Paraclete. Again, Tom Roberts. Uh, he, he opened this place in New Mexico as a refuge and a treatment center for alcoholic priests, mostly. Soon after it was opened, he began receiving priests who were abusive, sexually abusive, especially with kids. But Father Fitzgerald wasn't running a treatment center for pedophiles. 
And very quickly, he began, and, and I have, we, we published a long story, I have copies of letters that he sent to bishops all over the country saying, don't send these men to me. And these men should be taken out of ministry. Contrary to some psychologists at the time who would say that these men could be rehabilitated and sent back to parishes, Father Fitzgerald told church authorities that it was urgent that abusive priests be removed from the priesthood. He wasn't delicate in his language either. Uh, in a 1957 letter to a bishop that he addresses as most dear co-founder, and that was the, um, uh, the bishop, uh, bishop Byrne of Santa Fe, he wrote regarding those who abuse children, quote, These men, your excellency, are devils and the wrath of God is upon them, and if I were a bishop, I would tremble when I failed to report them to Rome for involuntary laization. Fitzgerald suggested laicization for any priest who, quote, tampered with the virtue of the young. He revealed in one letter that molester priests would pretend to be cured so that they could return to positions with access to children. In 1957, he wrote that such priests should be sent to an island where they could be isolated permanently. Fitzgerald and the bishop went so far as to put down a $5,000 deposit on an island but they never went through with the purchase. He continued later in the letter, it is for this class of rattlesnake, and this is a quote, I have always wished the island retreat, but even an island is too good for these vipers of whom the gentle master said it were better that they had not been born. Fitzgerald was given the opportunity to make his case at the highest levels of the church. In 1960, he was contacted by the Holy Office and asked to come to Rome to talk about this, his understanding of this problem. In 19, I think the same year, he had a personal meeting with Pope Paul VI, followed up by a detailed letter, again, we have a copy of, explaining his, his position. And he was telling bishops then, they probably can't be cured. They have to be taken out of ministry. Imagine. If the Pope and bishops had listened to Father Fitzgerald in the 1960s, where would we be today? Unfortunately, it's a question we'll never have an answer to, because Fitzgerald was ultimately ignored. Church leaders chose instead to listen to other experts, those with other, more palatable opinions. Well, I, you know, I, and I'll give the bishops credit. I mean, there, there were psychiatrists, psychologists at the time saying, uh, well, no, we can work with them, and, and this guy is a little bit over the top. But the warnings were very, very clear. And the warnings that they should be taken out of ministry was very, very clear. Over the following decades, bishops would attempt to rehabilitate abusers by sending them for psychological treatment. The world of psychology was divided on how to treat sexual abusers. And bishops, who were inclined to believe pedophilia was a treatable disorder, were known to select experts who agreed with them. Bishops could then send priests back to their flocks with a proverbial doctor's note, saying they were fit for ministry, and nobody could accuse them of doing nothing. One author estimated that by 2002, the American church had spent $50 million attempting to cure abuser priests through psychological treatment. It turned out to be a small down payment on the much larger sums they would have to pay in lawsuits and settlements. Like so many other places that experience sex abuse scandals in the church, Lafayette, Louisiana is a Catholic town. 
all of South Louisiana is Catholic. It's wholly Catholic. In fact, the Catholic Diocese of Lafayette is the most Catholic diocese in the country uh, by percentage, you know, the number of people living there and the number who are Catholics. Ray Mouton, he was the defense attorney for Gilbert Gauthier, the first Catholic priest to be criminally charged for sexual abuse. And I was very young. I was 36 years old, and I was a trial lawyer. It was Gauthier's story that I mentioned at the top of this episode. Gauthier molested dozens of boys in the Diocese of Lafayette. What happened there was in 83, the diocese, diocese and basically their insurance companies paid out millions in hush money secretly to settle some claims. And no one knew a thing about that. They were all sealed away in a courthouse vault. And one year later, in the summer of 84, the same lawyers appeared with 11 new clients, and the claim process started again. And then one of the families, and their son, he was 10, who had been anally raped repeatedly, he had even been hospitalized um, for bleeding, rectal bleeding. Um, They left the young lawyers who were settling these cases, and they went to a lawyer named Minus Seymour, who immediately filed a motion to unseal the case and let the world know what this priest had done to this child. And he went to the district attorney and put pressure on him to convene a grand jury and indict the priest. And that's when I was called in. Mouton told me about his first meeting with Gautet. It was unnerving. He wasn't anything like the monster that I expected him to be. He was very meek, very mild, very manipulative. When you know they're guilty, and obviously he was guilty because it developed very soon that there were uh, over a dozen children set to testify against him. He understood the damage he inflicted on these young people? Oh, no, he totally denied that. Totally denied that. He loved those boys. He loved those boys. He couldn't have possibly hurt those boys. He, he absolutely refused to acknowledge that he had hurt anyone. But what he had done, the acts, yeah, he, had, he admitted to those things. Um, really. Mouton told me that powerful and influential local Catholics not only the local bishops, but also politicians, hoped that if Gautier would just plead guilty, the church could avoid further scrutiny. I represent the guy, and they were going to take care of everything and make it all go away. They told me they could control the newspaper, they could control the two TV stations, and they could control the DA. In other words, they thought they could control me too, and I would just march right along, and what they wanted done was very, very clear. They wanted me to plead Gil Gote immediately to a series of life sentences. He was the problem, and he would become the solution. It would then be over. They, no one would ever know what the bishop knew and didn't know what he had done. Mutan refused to put on such a defense at his client's expense. I believe everyone is entitled to representation and entitled to have their rights asserted and rights protected. I wanted to represent him, and I wanted to find out what the truth was. But this new reality, that a priest could do such things to a child, 
was difficult for Mouton to comprehend. I was confused. You're asking what I felt that day? I was terribly confused. I remember canceling my afternoon, going home, and sitting on my patio. I lived out in the country and watching my little girl paddle a boat around our pond and trying to imagine how anyone would want to have sex with a child or how you could even have sex with a child. I never heard the word pedophile, and I could not believe that a priest had done this. Still, Mouton hoped to lessen Gautier's sentence by showing the priest's willingness to seek treatment and the church's willingness to reach out to victims. He could have served multiple life sentences, or he could have gotten a 20-year sentence. And it wasn't that I ever thought I could get him off scot-free, but I did believe that he deserved to be incarcerated in a place where he could be treated. At that time, I was meeting with the diocese, and I was demanding that they reach out to all of the victims of Gote. Because by that point in time, it was very, very clear that he was going to receive a criminal sentence. There was no way I was going to prevail at trial. And if he entered a plea, there was going to be a sentence. And I knew the only thing that could mitigate his sentence would be if he fully cooperated and tried to make those children as whole as they could. And the only thing he could do would go through the altar boy rosters, the yearbooks of all those grammar schools, and furnish as many names as possible. Not surprisingly, the diocese had very little interest in looking for even more victims. Ultimately, Gautier admitted under oath to molesting 37 boys. Mouton said the actual number could be in the hundreds. When I demanded that the diocese not act like a soulless corporation or the Nixon White House, and that they go knocking on the doors of these families of these victims, and in some cases, cases the victims themselves, because they were in their 20s, that they go knock on their doors and say, we know what happened to you. Here's one letter from the diocese where we underwrite, we will pay all psychiatric care for the family. Here's another letter that informs you you have a right to go to the police and district attorney. Here's another letter that informs you have a right to get private counsel for yourself and lodge a claim against us. Well, when I, when I, when I recommended that, you can imagine the church people went off like Roman candles and barred me from meetings thereafter and tried to fire me. And from that point forward, it was rocky, 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 and I became totally persona non grata with the Louisiana church. Gautier pled guilty to 11 counts each of child pornography, crimes against nature, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. An aggravated rape charge was dropped, which would have led to a mandatory life sentence. Instead, Gautier was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He served 10 thanks to the help of a high-ranking circuit court judge with family ties to Gautier. He was arrested again just months after his release for molesting a three-year-old boy. In 2019, reporters tracked Gautier down. At that time, he was living in an apartment complex in Texas. At first, Mouton thought that Father Gautier was an outlier. I absolutely believed at the core of my being at the outset that Gil Gautier was a single, sole aberrant 
priest. That they, I couldn't conceive that there could be another Catholic priest like this. Mouton soon realized how wrong he was. In 1985, Mouton met with Father Thomas Doyle, who was a canonist at the Vatican Embassy, and Father Michael Peterson, who was the founder of St. Luke's Institute, a rehabilitation center for priests, a lawyer, a canonist, and a psychiatrist, whose varied expertise put them in the perfect position to speak authoritatively on the problem of sex abuse in the church. The three men began gathering evidence around the country. And I mean, the evidence was just astounding. We were on the phone all day or in hotel rooms all week all over the country. We'd, we'd be in one city one day where we would meet with the bishop and the vicar general and the psychologist that they consulted with. And then I would interface with the lawyer. And then the next day we would go to a retreat house and talk to hundreds of priests, the whole diocese, and make a presentation to them about the canonical factors, the clinical factors, uh, the legal factors, the criminal factors, the civil factors. And then we'd get on a plane and go somewhere else and do it all over again, over and over. And we became like brothers. Um, and we really believed incredibly naively that not only were we going to save children from the church, we believed we were going to save the church from itself. We thought the hierarchy would really care if we could produce all of this evidence. Mutan, Doyle, and Peterson completed a 92-page memorandum to the bishops. It warned that sexual abuse in the church was a massive problem that would carry unprecedented consequences. A copy was sent to every bishop in the spring of 1985, but it did not become public for, I guess, another year or two. Reporter Jason Berry covered the abuse crisis in the 1980s, including extensive reporting on the Gautier case. If you look at it today, it, frankly, it's, it's rather prescient. Uh, they say that if the church does not take on an aggressive posture and uh, embrace reforms, that uh, the number of finan the financial losses could well exceed a billion dollars. That was written in 1985. I think the number today is closer to three or perhaps exceeding three billion. The authors warned that abuser priests could not be reformed. One section from the report reads, quote, those presumed to be guilty of sexual misconduct, especially if it involves child molestation, must never be transferred to another parish or post as the isolated remedy for the situation. I have a long section in the book I did in 1992, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, on how that report was written and the role that uh, Bishop Quinn, for example, of Cleveland played, who read the document and encouraged those three men in the writing of it. Uh, likewise, Bishop Leveda of California, who later became Archbishop and then Cardinal Leveda, the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith many years later, he too read it. So Bernard Law, as the Cardinal of Boston, was the man that these three guys had looked to. He even uh, sent Tom Doyle $1,000 for the duplicating costs, for the Xeroxing, to get the documents sent to all the bishops. And then they all walked away from it. Nobody wanted to touch it. And we thought if we gave them all the evidence how bad it was that they would act responsibly and morally and ethically and reach out 
to heal the victims and turn over the criminals to police authorities. And then Mouton told me the bishops turned on them. It, it, it got pretty brutal. No, they just said we were lying, you know, that there absolutely was no present crisis. And whatever did exist couldn't possibly grow to scandalous proportions. But they said we were lying, that we were making up. They literally called me a legal extortionist. One of the Louisiana bishops wrote to the nuncio, the Pope's ambassador in a country, to discredit the authors of the report, saying that the three men simply wanted to make money off the situation. The bishop notably called the clergy abuse of children a pedophile annoyance. They said, I was making this up to generate fees for my law practice when the fact was, corner the date on the letter where Bishop Quinn made that accusation against me is the date after my law office was closed. I wasn't looking for fees from anybody. You know, I'd, I'd retired. Jason Berry wrote about this in his book, Lead Us Not Into Temptation. I asked him, why would the Catholic bishops react this way to report that, by all accounts, was just trying to help the church avoid disaster? My answer is hubris. I think the tragic flaw there was the pride they felt in themselves and that this small uh, nuisance would go away. They did not want to hear those three men who were like uh, voices in the wilderness calling them to look at the truth. In 1992, another serial pedophile made national headlines. Former Catholic priest James Porter of Massachusetts was highlighted in a series of investigative reports by ABC News, revealing that Porter, who admitted to molesting as many as 100 children while he was a priest in the 1960s and 70s, continued to abuse for years after he left the priesthood. The story led to Porter's arrest and imprisonment. It also highlighted major problems with how the church dealt with the sexual abuse of children. For 14 years, church leaders moved Porter back and forth between treatment centers and parishes. With each new assignment, Porter found new child victims among the unsuspecting laity. In summer 1992, the U.S. bishops acknowledged publicly they had a real problem. They formed an ad hoc committee on the national level and drafted some basic rules on how to address clerical sex abuse. In some dioceses, real reforms began to take place. But the rules were voluntary, and from all appearances, the status quo remained in much of the country. And nowhere was that more true than in Boston. The clergy sex abuse crisis in the Archdiocese of Boston began with Father John Gagan, another serial pedophile. I'm attorney Mitchell Garabedian. I represent victims of clergy sexual abuse and sexual abuse worldwide, and I've been doing so for decades. Mitchell Garabedian is the lawyer who represented Gagan's victims and still does to this day. Let me put it this way. I have a hearing next week with the Archdiocese of Boston, and one of my clients was a Gagan victim. I've represented 153 victims of Father John J. Gagan over the years. Yeah, 153. And you have to remember, pedophile priests do not abuse one child and leave it alone. They abuse as many children as they can get their hands on, and they only stop 
until we become infirm or sick or incarcerated. Um, oftentimes, a priest will be abusing uh, children, uh, multiple children, in the same room at the same time. Other priests abuse one child at a time and wait till the child ages out, then abuse another child. Uh, it's just, it's rampant, and many victims come to me. I asked him about his very first case against Gagan. Well, in 1994, a woman came to me, and I had represented her in general matters throughout the years, and she wanted me to speak to her three children who were all boys, who were 8, 10, and 12 years old at that time. She wanted me to speak to them because it was a fatherless family. There was no man in, in the family. And the boys were acting out. Instead of just roughhousing, for instance, the oldest boy was becoming violent with his younger brothers. The middle boy was taking showers, two-hour showers, instead of you know, the usual time, 10-minute showers or 15-minute showers. And the youngest boy was washing his hands every day till they bled. Oh my gosh. And she came to me and she said, can you speak to my children? I don't, you've known them. And she was a very nice woman. She's tried to raise her children correctly. Uh, she really was a great mother. And I said, sure. And I spoke to them and they came into the conference, my conference room individually, and I just spoke to them. Um, I didn't quite understand why I was speaking to them except to help her out and find out what the issue was. And as it turns out, she lived in a, in a housing project in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And she was Catholic and deeply religious, and she wanted a male figure in the family. So Father John Gagan, John J. Gagan, would visit the family daily in the evenings, I should say. And he would um, participate in having dinner, putting the family, to, uh, children to sleep. And what I found out was when he would put them to sleep, um, put them to bed, he would prey on them, P-R-E-Y. He would fondle them, he would uh, touch them inappropriately sexually. And the boys, demeanors, their attitudes towards life, their personalities were changing. And that was just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Garabedian reached out immediately to the archdiocese. I told them about the problem with Father John J. Gagan. And at that time, I thought, well, maybe they have a problematic priest on their hands and they wanted to do something about it. But their, their response was, we'll throw some money at you. Instead of investigating the matter, speaking to the families, speaking to the children, speaking to the moms, they just wanted to throw money at the problem and keep it quiet. Garabedian filed the first civil lawsuit against Father Gagan on July 9, 1996. Many more followed, 86 in that first round. When a lawsuit goes to trial, the lawyers of each side have to share what they know and what they plan on presenting as evidence. It's called discovery. I was able to obtain 
files concerning Father John J. Gagan in what's known in canon law as the secret files. The secret files are actually called the secret files, the secret archives, and they're in the possession of the cardinal and they're to be kept secret. But the court ordered those secret files be turned over to me, and what we found in them was just horrific. The records revealed that from 1968, or possibly earlier, up to his retirement in 1993, Gagan was accused repeatedly of fondling and raping young boys. The archdiocese would send him for treatment and then reassign him to another parish where he would find new victims. In the discovery process, Garabedian also interviewed Boston's archbishop, Cardinal Bernard Law, under oath. We deposed Cardinal Law. Cardinal Law did not show any emotion. He really was like a corporate executive. He answered questions. And you're talking about a person who knew what was happening to innocent children. When do you think, or when do you know, you might know this, um, when did Cardinal Law first hear about Gagan and his abuse of, ch of children? I believe Cardinal Law knew all along, based on the thousands of pages of documents I have in the files uh, in my office, how could he not know? Gagan started abusing in the 1960s. So when Cardinal Law came into position, they had to tell him that Gagan was a problem. He had to have seen documents. I literally have thousands of pages about Gagan in my office concerning his the wholesale sexual abuse of children. But these documents weren't available to the public. In 2000, a judge granted the Archdiocese of Boston's motion to keep the documents confidential. Not even the lawyers were allowed to talk publicly about their contents until the judge ruled otherwise. But this silence wouldn't last long. In summer 2001, Marty Barron arrived at the Boston Globe as its new editor. The day before he started, he read a column in the paper that argued Cardinal Law was complicit in the abuse committed by Gagan. Barron told the paper's investigative team, called Spotlight, to dig deeper. The Globe requested the court unseal the documents about Gagan. That fall, a judge agreed. The archdiocese appealed unsuccessfully. By January 2002, the reporters were able to delve into the evidence in those 86 lawsuits. They also sued for the unsealing of documents regarding three other priests. Yeah, so what, what they did was they got the stuff. I mean, they got the language. Tom Roberts. They had the language of documents. They had language of the, the uh, communication and letters from bishops and archbishops in the past and law himself. Um, they had depositions that were under seal. Uh, that judge just released the whole mess. And that was the story. That, that was the narrative. This was the best narrative and the best documentation yet for how the church handled the sex abuse crisis. I mean, Marty Barron knew what he was doing there. This is something bigger than just individual priests. There's something systemic about this. And that's what, what really blew that open. Cardinal Law held a press conference shortly after the spotlight story broke in January 2002. 
At the outset, I apologize once again to all those who have been sexually abused as minors by priests. Today, that apology is made in a special way with, with heartfelt sorrow to those abused by John Gagan. Judgments were made regarding the assignment of John Gagan, which, in retrospect, were tragically incorrect. These judgments were, however, made in good faith and in reliance upon psychiatric assessments and medical opinions that such assignments were safe and reasonable. The Spotlight team wrote over 600 stories that year about clergy sex abuse. They won the Pulitzer Prize for their work. The Oscar-winning film Spotlight tells the story. Boston, in the mid-20th century, it was a thoroughly Catholic town. Phil Lawler, editor of the Catholic World Report. Lawler was born and raised in Boston and worked for a time as the editor of the Archdiocese and newspaper. You would assume that any, every politician wanted to be endorsed at least implicitly by his Catholic pastor because it would get him votes. Uh, and the church was the one institution everyone respected. When the Archbishop of Boston came into a room, everyone stood up, no matter what, who was in the room. It could be the state legislature. Uh, it, it could be it could be titans of industry. Everybody paid that kind of respect to the archbishop. It's a little thing, but it tells you so much. And that goes through into the 80s, into the 90s. I reached out to Lawler after reading his book, The Faithful Departed, The Collapse of Boston's Catholic Culture. I wanted to know how a Catholic in Boston would have processed the spotlight reports. At first, it was possible to believe, okay, this was a gross oversight. Cardinal Law was not a particularly, he was certainly not a hands-on administrator. Maybe he didn't know about this. But as more and more evidence emerged through the Globe investigation, even that sort of defense couldn't hold up. So it was, it was devastating to the public confidence in the archdiocese. And as the story emerged, as the details it emerged, it became clear that uh, there were multiple opportunities for the diocese to do something about it and nothing had been done, um, that Gagan was eventually shifted from one parish to another. So it, it was it was scandalous. It was a revelation that the uh, the archdiocese had been protecting a priest, an abusive priest, at the expense of innocent children. And not just one priest. With the Gagan incident, it was still possible to believe that Cardinal Law had just been negligent. And then came another series of other priests that made it clear not only was every leading official in the archdiocese aware of the abuse, but they were actually promoting the priest 
and punishing the lay people who were reporting the abuse. It was much worse than negligence. It was culpability beyond any doubt. Another infamous priest abuser in Boston was Paul Shanley. Shanley was a so-called street priest during the 1970s, working with runaway kids behind a veneer of concern for children rejected by their parents for homosexuality. He took advantage of them, raping and abusing more than a dozen known victims. The archdiocese made at least six secret settlements involving Shanley, reassigning him, even transferring him to a California diocese without disclosing anything about his past. That's the case to which I was alluding earlier. That's the case that made it impossible to hold the line on the belief that Cardinal Law or the other archdiocesan officials were just negligent because Shanley had not only been abusing boys, he had been flagrant about it. He had been reported frequently. Complaints had been made to Cardinal Law directly as well as to other officials of the archdiocese. The people uh, who made the complaints were dismissed And not only that, but officials of the archdiocese wrote recommendations for Shanley to do work in other dioceses, giving him a clean bill of health. So here it was a matter not of negligence, but outright complicity. And that was the point at which I, for one, said uh, that really Cardinal Law had to resign because there was no recovering from the damage that did to his credibility. Law was forced to resign in disgrace in December 2002. It used to be that a priest walking around in a Roman collar on the streets of Boston uh, would get smiles and hi, Father, and tipping your hat if you had a hat. Uh, And then in around 2002, priests were telling me they didn't want to wear their collars because people would insult them, spit at them. They were objects of of ridicule and contempt. It it was a tumultuous change for the role of the church in in that society. And then a pattern began to emerge. A lot of other newspapers tried to do what the Globe had done, and they dug into what was happening in other dioceses, and they found the same pattern of behavior again and again with priests who had been accused The accusers had been effectively silenced. The priest had been moved to another parish where they started abusing again. There were lawsuits that were settled, all with uh, restrictions that the the plaintiffs couldn't disclose what was happening, what had happened. And so it, it ripped around the country in what Father Richard John Newhouse called the Long Lent of 2002. Facing the media spotlight, the prospect of financial liability, and perhaps also the sheer magnitude of the horror they had permitted, the American bishops met again to address the crisis. The penance that is necessary here is not the obligation of the church at large in the United States, but the responsibility of the bishops ourselves. Archbishop Wilton Gregory is the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. In early 2002, he was the Bishop of Belleville, Illinois, and the newly minted President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He spoke at a meeting of the bishops in Dallas in June 2002. The main agenda item was the sex abuse crisis. 
the bishops gathered to vote on new national policies, the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, often called the Dallas Charter. Gregory's speech was a public confession. It is we who need to confess. And so we do. We are the ones, whether through ignorance or lack of vigilance, or God forbid, with knowledge, who allowed priest abusers to remain in ministry and reassigned them to communities where they continued to abuse. We are the ones who chose not to report the criminal actions of priests to the authorities because the law did not require this. We are the ones who worried more about the possibility of scandal than bringing about the kind of openness that helps prevent abuse. And we are the ones who at times responded to victims and their families as adversaries and not as suffering members of the church. During this time, Bishop Gregory would travel to Rome to see Pope John Paul II. His task was urgent convince Rome of the severity of the crisis unfolding in the United States. He made his case directly to the Pope, who summoned every American cardinal to the Vatican, including Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. I spoke with Archbishop Gregory about these trips. During the time that I was president, those three years, I made 13 trips to the Holy See. Some of the trips were trying to convince different members of the Curia of the necessity of the ac- actions. And, and my, mine was not the only voice. There were uh, designated groups of bishops and some of the cardinals who carried uh, serious weight and played important and significant roles in convincing the Holy See that this was something that was needed. Now, Some of the difficulties that we faced was not everyone in the Holy See was convinced that this was a universal problem. The visits to Rome produced the desired effect. In an address to the American cardinals, Pope John Paul II insisted, there is no place in the priesthood and religious life for those who would harm the young. The statement alone was not a change in policy, but those words opened the door for one of the most significant changes in the way the church in the United States handles allegations of clerical sex abuse. By the time we got to Dallas in June, most bishops were already convinced. Now, they were not necessarily all on board with all of the different protocols. One of the protocols was that any priest or deacon who was found to have violated, sexually abused a, uh, a child could never be put back in public ministry. In other words, zero tolerance. This was the most significant reform to come out of the meeting in Dallas. For some, it was hard to accept. We had to convince the Holy See that removing a man 
because of an event that had occurred several, maybe many, many decades ago, was the only way to assure people that the priest who walked into the sanctuary on Sunday didn't have that as part of his history, uh, and that they could trust that every priest who would be celebrating or serving them or celebrating the sacraments with them was not someone who had harmed a child in the past. And so uh, it meant that bishops, many bishops, too many bishops, had to go back to their dioceses and remove priests, some of whom had served without uh, an additional incident for many years, but because of the charter, they could no longer be in public ministry. That was a bitter pill for some bishops to swallow. The Dallas Charter represented substantial progress especially because of the promise of zero tolerance. There were other key reforms as well, including mandatory reporting of abuse allegations to civil authorities, very limited use of non-disclosure agreements, the creation of lay review boards to advise bishops on abuse allegations, and published yearly audits of each diocese to ensure compliance. While the Dallas Charter proved a huge step forward, it didn't make the abuse crisis go away. Between 2002 and 2018, 19 American dioceses, archdioceses, or provinces of religious orders went bankrupt due to financial settlements related to the abuse crisis. The Archdiocese of Los Angeles alone paid a $660 million settlement in 2007. And abuse scandals continued to make headlines. Perhaps the most egregious was that of Marcial Maciel, a Mexican priest and founder of the Legionaries of Christ, a religious congregation of Catholic priests, and the lay movement Regnum Christi. The conservative order was praised for its ability to recruit large numbers of vocations and to fundraise. Maciel was hailed by many as a living saint. Even Pope John Paul II sung his praises, calling Maciel an efficacious guide to youth. Maciel was plagued with accusations of sexual abuse of minors going back to the 1950s. The Legion aggressively denied the allegations. For the next 10 years, Catholics around the world were divided into two camps, those who believed the allegations and those who didn't. It wasn't until 2006 that Pope Benedict XVI finally indicated that the Vatican found the allegations to be credible. Maciel was ordered to a life of prayer and penitence. After Maciel's death in 2008, the details of Maciel's double life slowly began to emerge. Reporters uncovered at least two women who claimed to be common-law wives of Maciel, and that he had at least three children. One said she knew Maciel by the name of Raul Rivas, and that she believed for years he worked for the CIA. Maciel had been supporting both women financially, using Legion money. There are indications that there could be more. One of his own sons claims Maciel molested him and his brother. In 2019, 11 years after Maciel's death, the Legionaries of Christ acknowledged 60 known sexual abuse victims of Father Maciel, and that many of his victims became abusers themselves. They revealed a total of 175 victims of sexual abuse by Legionary priests. In 2015, 
Bishop Robert Finn of Kansas City became the first U.S. bishop to be convicted on abuse-related charges when he failed to report a priest who was suspected of taking pornographic photos of children. And other abuse crises emerged in Ireland, Belgium, Chile, Germany, Australia, and elsewhere. The Catholic Church, and priests in particular, became objects of public ridicule, an easy punchline on late-night television. It was embarrassing to be Catholic. Then came the McCarrick Revelations of 2018, which exposed a significant weakness in the Church's reforms. The Dallas Charter didn't hold bishops to the same standards as priests, nor did it include any real consequences for cover-ups. Aside from the Pope in Rome, there was, and is, no ecclesial authority that holds bishops to account. The bishops were not included in the protocols of the Charter. Archbishop Gregory. We are priests. We are clerics. We have contact with young people. And so we should be held to the same standard of accountability and responsibility that the priests and the other clerics, the deacons are, and now obviously uh, religious who are in day-to-day service with the, uh, with the faithful. In 2019, Pope Francis addressed bishop accountability in a letter titled Vos Estis Lux Mundi. Finally, the Pope established new procedural norms for the universal church to combat sexual abuse and to hold bishops and religious superiors accountable. In the nearly two decades since the Dallas Charter, the Church has been trying to find better ways for dealing with and preventing abuse. In the wake of adopting the Dallas Charter, the U.S. bishops commissioned a report from experts at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The John Jay Report, as it has come to be known, examined the nature and scope of Catholic clerical abuse in the United States. It was published in 2004. If the first John Jay report intended to catalog what had happened, a second report published in 2011 sought to answer a much more difficult question. Why? What caused the clerical abuse crisis of the Catholic Church in the United States? It's a question we'll be asking in our next episode of Crisis. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Karna Lozoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, communications manager Sarah Perla, and writer David Ferdoso. Sound designed by Paul Vikas, music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. Archival audio provided by C-SPAN and EWTN. And a very special thank you to all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. 
Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.